Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We are going to talk, inevitably, about the Grammys. The Grammys happened again. And to talk about the Grammys again, we have Brittany Spanos, Moncaper Conte, and Rob Sheffield. Welcome all. Now, Rob argued that these were the best Grammys ever. I'll maybe start by letting Rob make that case, and then I'll allow some other voices in who may or may not agree. Well, because of the pandemic conditions, they were forced to adapt, and they actually pushed the ceremony back almost two months in order to sort of rethink how they were going to do it under these safe conditions. And what they basically ended up doing was just having a lot of artists play music for almost four hours, which is something that the Grammys, that's usually something that they're slow to realize is the best part of the ceremony and the only part that people really care about. And so they had no audience and they had no presenters and uh, they had no stupid comedy bits. They basically just had the artists on the soundstage playing their own songs, no like people who are super famous do a bunch of somebody else's songs because their tribute number came up. And a really beautiful thing just to see the musicians perform at this level of intensity and also like, you know, listening to each other and, and enjoying each other. So just the intensity of music, it's unlike any other Grammy ceremony I've ever seen. There's this separation that we've talked about before. There's the Grammys as TV show, and then there's the Grammys as awards. And the Grammys as TV show was actually, at least for the last, I don't know, however many years, have been substantially better than the Grammys as awards, which are just a consistent disaster in many people's opinion. And I think this is another example where the the show was, I thought, pretty great, but there's all this sort of rot under the surface. And the question is how you separate it and how you see it. But Mankapur, what do you think about that? I thought that the show was super enjoyable to watch. It was so smooth. And I think at this time that so many of us feel so isolated, it was nice to watch members of the music community enjoy each other's company, root for each other as acts, um, and celebrate each other as winners. Um, I was having a conversation with one artist, a jazz musician in D.C., who is a member of the Academy, just doing some reporting, though. And he brought up a really interesting point in that as far as the Grammys as awards go, there isn't as much uh, diversity in the recognition across categories as far as like we don't so you know the classical artists the jazz artists the rap artists the R&B winners they're relegated to the premiere ceremony and so we don't get to see artists across genre like truly truly shine on the Grammy stage and so this artist that I was speaking to was just like well what if every year they rotated in different categories in the main show just to sort of shout out and acknowledge all the people that make up the music that we love and that's been something that's been sitting with me as far as the Grammys as awards go. Fair enough. Yeah. And ironically, the old Grammys tended to do a bit more of that pulling in like classical and jazz performers, at least to kind of have Grammy moments with 
whoever I'm sure Rob with his encyclopedic memory can pull up times when when like a Marsalis was pulled up with like Steve Vai or whatever the hell. Like there's always things like that, which I think are now ironically are now considered corny. So but I thought I mean some of the like Burna Boy in the pre-show was incredible and that should have been in the in the main show. That was really a stunning performance and I think would have I mean obviously he's super successful in the US already, but I think the same way that Hyam is a very familiar act to us, but was brand new to a, a large number of viewers, I think it would have been really great to include that. I also think there's crazy ratings pressure, and I also think there's genre prejudice of various kinds, and also there's also ageism now, where it's even the coolest artists who are over 50, other than Lionel Richie, are completely excluded, so that's an interesting reversal of things. But Brittany... <laughs> What did you think? I really liked it. I honestly, like, I think they could have taken it a little bit further with the roundabout and just sort of, like, I love, like, the opening where it was Harry, then Billy, then Haim, and Black Pumas, and, like, them all kind of being in the roundabout and you seeing them react to each other's performances. I would have loved that stripping away of the, the spectacle of some of them and, like, having just, like, everyone be in that roundabout the entire night. Like, I, that's that was such a great idea to kind of be able to see these artists interact with one another, artists that may have crossed paths at some point in the year if they if there were tours, if there were other events and award shows and that we got to see them do this. And yeah, I just like I I also really love the actual ceremony. It's like when they were do, presenting the awards and just being able to see the artists very intimately react to like Megan winning or like Beyonce becoming the most awarded female artist. Like, you know, things like those were really cool to witness just everyone in their like very elaborate masks just have these like really excited genuine reactions to everyone um I thought that was really fun I'm kind of like if there's no audience ever again for the Grammys like I don't think that's the worst thing in the world like I think it was just felt very like an actual community like a graduating class almost of getting to like celebrate these moments I could not agree more I think it was sort of a non-problematic vision of the best part of the Golden Globes, of what the dream of the Golden Globes, which is that you're peering in on this very private sort of celeb-only thing. And I, I agree, the audience turns out to be completely useless. Sorry, audience. And also, it got us the Harry and Taylor moments, which everyone enjoyed uh, way too deeply. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was it was just like, it, it, it was the Jen and Brad at the, well, I don't forget what that was, the Oscars or Golden Globes a couple years ago, when everyone just, it just shows how weak everyone is for those kind of things. No one is too proud. It's me. Yeah. I am yeah. weak. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not Brittany being weak on this particular thing. <laughs> More exes interacting at award shows. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nothing is better. Um, but let's jump to uh, one of the most awkward moments and then we'll, we'll get back to some fun stuff. But this business of Billie Eilish being caught in this position that the Grammys have put, I guess, white artists in many times in the past. In recent years, uh, artists are now awake enough to realize the awkwardness of it, but then seem to just make it more awkward. The most infamous is, is Macklemore, who basically practically killed his career with that text to Kendrick saying he deserved the award, and it just didn't hit right. <laughs> and even Adele had a lot of trouble with that Beyonce moment that didn't seem to hit right. Macklemore, you wrote about this. What, what are we to... It's a tough thing because ultimately the artist didn't do it. The Academy did it. But at the same time, if they if they really don't think they deserve to win, they could have not entered themselves in that category. So there's a little bit of disingenuousness there and awkwardness. And then, then also it's the Academy making this wrong decision again and again. And then just broadly 
systematically, historically, just I think 10 black artists have won album of the year in the entire history of the Grammys. Beyonce never won album of the year. You could go on and on. So what do you make of all this? <laughs> it's a tough one. It is tough. And especially for an artist like Billie Eilish, you know, watching her genuinely fangirl over Megan Thee Stallion and she's young. And I think that that makes her slightly more like empathetic. <laughs> but I, I think the thing that's frustrating for me is the claim that you can't possibly accept the award, but then you accept <laughs> the award. And so I I just wonder uh, what it would say to the Academy if an artist who is given an award they truly don't believe they deserve were to truly reject it. Or were to not just say, you know, I believe that this award belongs to Kendrick or Beyonce or Megan Thee Stallion, but here's what I know about the Recording Academy. Um, Billboard reported in like October that like only 25% of the Recording Academy's makeup of nearly like 15,000 members is diverse, right? Whatever that means. But what if an artist were to say, here's what I know about the Academy and the problems in the Academy that might've caused this outcome. And I think that with Billy's speech, it was even more frustrating because she said, you know, I had thought about this outcome happening. I had prepared a speech in the event that, if I'm remembering it correctly, if I prepared a speech in the event that I won this, but I just thought it would be so impossible that I would win, that I didn't think I would have to give it. What if Billy like really had stuck to something meaningful, like a meaningful reflection on the state of music, diversity in music, and um, use that moment to really hone in on the power that she had. But instead, you know, you have people awkwardly clapping for Megan Thee Stallion. You have an unwanted, potentially spotlight put on a Black artist, and you make them seem like they're um, a victim without necessarily pointing to who caused the harm. Right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On a lighter note, a lot of people pointed out that when Trevor Noah surprised Beyonce with, you know, you are now you are now tied for this record, and which she then promptly broke like three minutes later. That was, I thought, hilarious. A lot of people pointed out that Beyonce had a look on her face like, do not surprise me. Do not like surprise parties. Why did you not inform me of this in the first place? I mean, unless it was all planned and she was acting, but a lot of people were laughing at Beyonce's like slight annoyance with the whole thing. Brittany, what, did you catch that? I mean, no one has less wanted to be at most functions than Beyonce has. And I feel like she just kind of like, I don't know, I think a lot of it, 
what what was kind of nice about it is that there was sort of this genuineness to her reaction where she was like just trying to walk back to her seat like it was like the most <laughs> awkward way to stop someone like she was trying to make it down the steps in like a tight dress and heels like the worst possible time to stop someone when they're trying to walk somewhere and like of course he's gonna like you know just like be like okay like we have a few more minutes with Beyonce like let's just keep her on camera and like mention this thing right now before she actually breaks the record and like you know has that one more award but it was it was very good I feel like a lot of those award shows those kind of forced moments of like let's put Beyonce back on camera she's always looks like she's dreading and just like please I'm I'm a celebrity get me out of here Trevor Noah was totally fine had a good energy but I think that was unfortunately his funniest moment and not even intentionally but (laughs) the clownishness of him trying to get the audience excited when there was no audience there that he's, you know, just yelling like, Beyonce, Beyonce, just like it was a theme of the night of men sort of trying to um, ride her shine a bit. Like even when, you know, Jimmy Jam and Babyface were first announcing that this was happening, that was sort of an ambush. It was a weird kind of thing of like, you know, men very much wanting to make this announcement without Beyonce being in in the loop. It was a bit tacky. And again, like Brittany was saying, she was literally on the stairs It was not a comfortable moment for her. And he was just, you know, trying to sort of get cheers and laughs yelling her name, which is not how she likes to do things. (laughs) You mean if I yell the name Beyonce right now, you're not going to all start cheering? It doesn't doesn't work like that. Mankapur, what were some other moments, if any, that just struck you as cringy during the show? Uh, That struck me as cringy. A moment that I struggled with was actually... Um, Lil Baby's performance of the bigger picture that was uh, an elaborate recreation of a police shooting and protests that followed. It featured Killer Mike and activist um, Mallory giving a really impassioned speech. And the reason I've struggled with it has kind of been illuminated in conversations online since. Really, people have bemoaned the fact that the performance was more outrage-oriented, perhaps, than it was solution-oriented. You know, we experienced such a traumatic summer, so much loss, and there were more people in the streets participating in the social movement um, in defense of Black lives than maybe have been in America's history as far as protests and civil unrest goes. And that being called upon in the performance didn't necessarily speak to how we can make real change. It more so people are concerned gives a sort of like wokeness clout to the performers and the participants. And I've been sitting with those arguments and really thinking about who is the the true beneficiary of like a scene like that. Hmm. Yeah, I I think I did see a substantial amount of of backlash to it. And it's interesting. I think there was an assumption that they were punching some kind of card and then it would be universally praised as having that awareness. I mean, the thing I saw a number of, of mostly black journalists saying is that to so realistically reenact those moments of trauma felt a little bit exploitative. Yeah, it definitely it definitely could feel that way. And I, I've seen testaments to that perspective as well. And then some of the controversy that has bubbled up in the aftermath of the performance has involved mothers whose sons were killed by police. The mother of Tamir Rice, Samaria Rice, and another mother, Lisa Simpson, uh, made very direct statements saying, you know, we don't 
think that it is right for an activist like Tamika Mallory, who I know and am friendly with, to be the face in such a public arena of our pain and our suffering when there are so many different family members who have suffered this unbelievable loss that could have potentially have been called upon. And it's hard because there have been such an incredible, um, awful number of killings by police in our country that there are so many people who can, who this scenario really resonates with. And I was kind of curious, like thinking about the impact of this, this particular performance was meant to evoke the killing of Richard Brooks in Atlanta over the summer. And so I was just like, okay, well, if something like this is potentially about awareness or activism, has there been any peak in uh, interest in the Rayshard Brooks case? And so I just did like a quick Google trend search to see if maybe his name was looked into more frequently after the performance, and that wasn't the case. And so I'm really left wondering, you know, when musicians want to make sociopolitical statements, what kind of message are they best suited to share with everyone? Well said. Let's talk about some of the more interesting moments. I, I think the baby's performance was really interesting because the concept was so wild or actually hard to articulate. A bunch of Supreme Court justices singing opera behind him and he was uh, conducting while Roddy Rich did his part. Can this concept even be verbalized? How did they pitch this performance? Yeah, that was actually one of my favorites. I thought that the juxtaposition of the baby and the choir in the background was so like striking and rich. And I and he's performed Rockstar several times uh, since it came out. Actually, once in a performance that was not that too dissimilar from Lil Baby's performance of the bigger picture for the BET Awards. But this time, you know, with the diamond studded gloves and having his conductor's wand, I'm sure there's like a better term for what that stick is. Um, it was really, really enjoyable. And I really, the thing I most enjoyed about that performance was the way that he added variety to the song. Like there was one moment where he says something to the effect of, I'm performing at the Grammys now, but I could get profiled on my way out, which spoke to the seriousness of the song and the remix of the song. Uh, that was created in light of the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer, but also didn't dedicate the whole performance to it. So let's go back to the beginning of the show, which was a series of unusually strong performances, as we were saying. And I was really struck by the fact that they just had great performances in a row without fail, which has rarely happened in, in, in Grammy history. What do we make of Harry Styles? I think for some, it's easy to forget, again, with, as with Haim, that for some people, because a lot of people watch the Grammys, this could have been an introduction to this fully formed, grown-up Harry Styles, super sex bomb, super confident Harry Styles. And it was just, if he hadn't already made his career, it, it felt like almost it could be a career-making performance. But I know, Rob and Brittany, you don't like Harry Styles, so there's really <laughs> nothing to say about this. Who? No. I thought it was great. I thought Dev Hines being in it was incredible like such a wonderful surprise really early on is to have someone like Dev Hines kind of come out and he music directed it and he played the bass in there like to have him join in was such a great moment especially like I don't know I feel like again the Grammys you know as we mentioned like they always kind of have these like collaborations and always like these kind of forced moments of like everyone coming together and I loved seeing that I was hoping that'd be like a little bit more of like those like surprises in the performances but I love Dev Hines kind of coming out really early and 
I mean, it was great to hear Watermelon Sugar and to kind of see Harry take his first Grammys a, a decade into his career. Um, you know, after you know, One Direction was never recognized and his first album wasn't, and to kind of see him come out so strongly and, you know, just kind of showing off the band and having a good time at the top of the show. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was a great sort of way to um, to start off the show, going from, you know, Harry to Billy to Haim to Black Pumas and everybody listening to each other. Something I loved was that uh, during Harry's performance, when he did the sort of bump and grind with the boa and left it on the floor, doing the exact same dance moves that Rod Stewart did in the 70s TV special uh, with Cher and Dolly Parton when he sang Hot Legs. And he had the same kind of uh, basically like bump and grind with the boa routine. Harry throws the boa on the ground, goes back to the microphone. And I love that he put it back on in order to listen to the other artists because something about uh, having the feather boa on increases his concentration as a listener. I just think that's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's his listening boa. Yes. And the way it's sort of used the sort of Jules Holland later TV show format for just going from one music performance to another, really super effective and, and super musical in a way that felt very celebratory. Rob, do you think he actually studied that particular Rod Stewart performance and was emulating it? Or are you saying, or do you think it was a coincidence? Uh, I think it was a case of great English boys who, who love uh, rock and roll, think alike, you know, sort of thing. Uh, I, I think it was a, a spiritual synchronicity. And I loved Haim. I thought that I've seen them perform so many times over the years. And I think I probably first saw them open for like Mumford and Sons in 2012. And they have come, they always were a very interesting live band, but they've come so far as songwriters and performers. And, I, you know, I think one of the things that can be great about the Grammys is when an act has spent years kind of honing their stuff and getting to a point where it kind of seems magic, like their instruments switch and everything where it's just so dead on, uh, as well as the song, which is, I think, one of their best songs. They keep getting better. I just saw that people who had never heard of them were like, oh, my God, this, this band's incredible. Brittany, I know you like that performance. What did you make of it? Yeah, I, really, I mean, I Women in Music Part 3 is such a great album, and I'm so glad it was recognized at the Grammys. I mean, if they like had dropped a medley in that, I would have been like, hell yeah. Like They wanted to do a few songs in that moment. They were so great. I love that they were... Um, I think they were playing like a little bit of Watermelon Sugar as like Trevor Noah was introducing everyone to, which I kind of loved as well, that they were like sort of like the band backing Trevor Noah as he was showing off the little roundabout area. Um, I, yeah, I was just so glad to kind of to see this album get recognized. And I love the steps. It's such a great song. And I think that they're so fantastic live. I'm always kind of excited to see how how much they've grown from from the beginning. And there's like such a, a solid band of performers, of songwriters, singers, like just really excellent. Uh, before I forget, I wanted to jump to the end of the show for a minute and say something about BTS. I don't know what everyone else thought, but in my opinion, at least, they really were one of the high points of the show. Their energy was so amazing. And as usual, the performance was wildly tight. And I know BTS fans, I think, are, are really tired of comparisons to the Beatles, which I totally get. But I got to say, there was a real hard day's night energy to that particular performance. And it kind of made a virtue of the necessity of them performing from South Korea because of COVID, obviously, instead of in Los Angeles, because they perfectly recreated that Grammy setting. 
and then got to the rooftop and we realized they were in Seoul. And it was that stunning view of the city and that was probably the greatest visual moment of the whole night. But anyway, my feeling was that if you're going to have a performance like that and you're going to tease it all night, you should probably do BTS the honor of closing the show rather than have them second to last, which is kind of a nothing slot. I think at least closing the show would have done that performance more justice. But in any case, it doesn't take anything away from the performance, which was a great moment. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. What I'd say about Billie Eilish, who, who was very good as always, is that her set was so weekend-y to me somehow. It just felt like what they were going to use for the weekend's performance <laughs> if he showed up. And it just reminded, there were a couple moments like that. There was another one that reminded me of the of the weekend Super Bowl performance set with the, the mirrors moment. I forgot which one. Oh, Bad Bunnies. But, yeah. That, yes. Yeah, yeah. I was when like, Bad Bunny uh, came out, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Did they have all this stuff set up for the big weekend moment? And it was, it was like, Billy, you take the car. You take the, the like wrecked 80s landscape car. And Bad Bunny, you take the mirror. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Was the absence of The weekend kind of looming over this show a little bit? I mean, it still feels so weird that he wasn't nominated. I mean, Blinding Lights was such a, still such a huge song. And I really loved his Super Bowl performance. And so especially coming after that, you know, and I mean, if this were, you know, on a regular timeline, the Grammys probably would have come like, what, like a week or two after the Super Bowl too. Um, so it just felt really strange, especially um, to not have a song like Blinding Lights performed there. Like I said earlier, I talked to one artist, but not just one, a couple of artists that don't have as big of profiles as like an artist like The Weeknd about, you know, his announcement that he would no longer be submitting his records um, for consideration because of the quote unquote secret committees, which are pretty well, well, which is the information about how Grammys voting works and the anonymous committees is like pretty accessible. And I think that the thing about The weekend's perspective on the Grammys and his exclusion, it does seem pretty egregious, but at the same time, I wonder if it puts a damper on the win. The thing about the committees really fascinates me because the committees started out <laughs> as an effort to fix the Grammys. The committees actually started, which is the tremendous irony here, the committees started when there was a heavy metal award, and I bet Rob can tell me exactly what year, famously, Best Heavy Metal went to Jethro Tull, a band that was never heavy metal, was also decades past its prime. And that sparked a whole thing of, we need to make sure that these nominations aren't embarrassing. And so they started all these committees, and then here we are decades later, and the committees are perhaps the problem. Uh, so it just shows it just shows how long the Grammys have been trying to get it right and just compounding their problems. Rob, you were either nodding or disagreeing. I couldn't tell. Oh, it was 1988. Oh, 1988. Okay. I- <laughs> and this year, showing how uh, in touch the Grammys are with metal, uh, it, it went to body count. On the other hand, contra to that, it's amazing historically that body count, Ice T's band, that sparked one of the uh, the most incendiary music censorship controversies of all time 
would quietly win a Grammy and no one paid much attention to that. It, it, it's just it just shows again how how things that were once the most I mean it's hard to emphasize. I mean they had a you know for anyone who's listening who doesn't they had a song called Cop Killer. You know, it was specifically, it was about the same things that we're talking about now. And it was written from the point of view of someone seeking revenge. It wasn't Ice-T literally saying he was going to you know, do that. Uh, but it was monumentally controversial. Ice-T famously appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone dressed in a police uniform, which little did he know <laughs> predicted his career arc going forward. But that was that had nothing to do with that. It was it was at, at the time it was a troll. Uh, that's what that was because, the you know, the cops hated him. But yes, it, it does show how they can do the right thing 30 years at the wrong time. Even when they, they do the right thing, it, it could be 30 years too late. So I'm not even sure what else was nominated in the medal category. But anyway, so the, the weekend says he's not submitting. There's a, there's a bunch of people who just will not go on the Grammys. It was funny talking to my friends who aren't in music and were kind of just like aghast at some of the winners in the awards. And I was like... This is, it's so weird because in my memory of the Grammys, like the last like, you know, few years have been sort of, uh, you know, a little bit more towards popular people, like people who are actually like kind of having like more of the, especially in the big four categories where it's like winners prior were always like the album of the year winners were always so weird, like very like Grammy bait was so much different like a decade ago than it is now. Even just like thinking about like, when Beyonce self-titled lost, it lost to a throwaway Beck album. Like literally a Beck album I had to look up the name of and I did not remember at all. Like it's like having like Mumford when, you know, in like years where it was like, I think they are up against like, I don't know, Adele or something like, you know, weird, like weird stuff like that. It's so funny to kind of see the perspective on it and like how there's still like this idea of like a Grammy bait winner, but even that has changed significantly of like how certain popular artists are seen as Grammy bait versus other artists. Let's talk about Black Pumas. Black Pumas are one of those bands, it does feel a couple things. It, it feels like sometimes when the Grammys seize on something that's not super high profile in the larger culture and just kind of make them a Grammy thing, there's something always a little jarring <laughs> about it because it feels like the Grammys invented them. I'm sure there's people who feel that way about Gary Clark Jr., for a while, he had no profile other than being on the Grammys. You don't see the guy all year, and there he is all over the Grammys. I think the Black Pumas, who they sound a little bit, honestly, not unlike the Black Keys, and they just make that kind of like bluesy, pleasant, super competent, mood-setting music that is, you know, could I have a grande latte? I don't know. What, what do we all make of the Black Pumas phenomenon? They were, I mean, it was so funny because last year was when they had gotten so many nominations. I think they were up for Best New Artist. They were up for Song of the Year. Like They were up for like a bunch in the big four and other categories. Like I had never heard of them before that. And I don't even remember if they performed at last year's Grammys. And for some reason, I think it was the roundabout too. Like that was like the perfect venue for them to kind of show off and, you know, having these like you know, those little intros that they were doing, the little video packages they're doing for a lot of the artists. Like, like I genuinely loved kind of seeing them in that mode. And I love seeing them on that stage and in that way. Like, that song was really good. And I was like, oh, like, maybe I'm like a, a Black Puma stan now. Um, but yeah, they very much, they do kind of have like a, a Starbucks quality to them. They also like, if I didn't, if I hadn't looked up that they were like based out of Austin, I would have guessed that they were from Austin because they have very like <laughs> this is the type of band you stumble into at the end of South by Southwest like for no reason and just like are there and like this is great like just the random kind of 
you know, you just kind of end up at a South by showcase and they're playing and you're like, cool, I'll be here. Um, they definitely have that vibe to me and I, I enjoyed it. And I feel, yeah, it's like the live music thing too. It felt like a really good band to see live. Like they just had such good energy all together. Makapur, any thoughts? <laughs> that is the most vicious Black Pumas review I've ever heard. Uh, <laughs> that is so damning. I, I don't think they'll even ever recover from that. Rob, I think you said you hadn't really heard them before. Yeah, they were totally new to me. And uh, it was a fantastic song. It had a real um, early 70s Memphis kind of groove, very much in the Al Green, Willie Mitchell sort of mode. And uh, just fantastic guitar shredding which was really the only really like full-blown guitar shredding of the night. And in a way, that was the Eddie Van Halen tribute that didn't happen, was that they just, you know, wailed on the guitar for a while. It worked also fantastically in the round. Like you said, like Haim had so much fun watching it. Harry had so much fun watching it. And that sort of intimacy on the soundstage between the musicians really just began the night on such a Strong, strong note. I really, I like the nerdy guy in the band. The, the, I guess the guitar player. It seemed like it seemed like he was he was simultaneously going to uh, play in the band and write a really um, snarky review of it. So that, that, that was a, that was a good vibe. Just but so many bands playing music in in the first fifteen twenty minutes of the show. It was really like a remarkable way to begin the show and and, uh, and just very strong. There were a few things like one of the things that didn't work for me was Post Malone. You know, I said this a couple of times, I, I felt like it was one of those things where it was the whole performance was something that someone would do for the first 30 seconds of a performance that would then turn into something. I'm wearing this leather coat. Isn't that enough? It just it, it, it just felt like nothing to me. Do we have any dissenters on that? It was funny I, when he said that just... he was inspired to like to play music and be a musician by playing Guitar Hero. I love that. <laughs> That makes me a Post Malone fan like like nothing before. <laughs> He's someone that I think would have benefited from doing the the kind of stripped down in the round performance. Like I think like he like doing a song like Circles in that would have been really fun or even just like, you know, I don't even remember the name of the song that he Hollywood something. Um, but yeah, like I didn't quite get it. I was like, if you're going to go for this whole like vampire kind of, you know, blood rave thing, do a blood rave like might as well like go for it. <laughs> I thought Mickey Guyton was uh, just incredible, and I have to like I don't follow country as much as I should, and that's someone I had read about. I kept reading about reading that she was great, and I just hadn't heard the song. I'll admit that if Rob can admit he hadn't heard Black Pumas, I, I just hadn't. I kept hearing that she was. It, it, it's actually some, sometimes that's the greatest thing is you, you keep hearing a name, reading a name, and and then you see the actual performance. You're like, oh, that completely lived up to it. I understand why people were talking about her, and I thought that just killed. And I thought it was so interesting to take not only the sound of the kind of country music that gets played on the radio, but even the lyrical tropes, every, you know, white picket fences and everything, and then turn it around into something that I guess you know. I don't know if the listeners of country radio are ready for it or not, but I do know that the people who, who decide the playlist of country radio have decided they aren't ready for it. It doesn't get, get played. Um, so it's a real interesting embrace and rebuke of that whole kind of area of, of music. And it was, it was just a, a really, I thought, powerful performance. Yeah, I agree. It was my first time hearing her perform Black Like Me as well. And the fact that it is really 
truly, like you said, like speaks to so many tropes in country music while confronting racism, while still being a really beautiful song and just like one person's, you know, really honest, like jarring testimony um, really struck me. And then the other thing in that moment with the country, uh, the country segment of the Grammys was the way that the three women that performed introduced each other. And that gave like an air of like sisterhood and camaraderie amongst them. Um, Like really acknowledging each other in that space was really nice to see. That's a great point. And it was sisterhood plus John Mayer though, which Brittany was not (laughs) thrilled about. (laughs) Every every great sisterhood needs a John Mayer in it. I just, I'm so tired of the John Mayer industrial (laughs) complex. I'm over it. And I, Maren Morris did not need that at all. And I don't know. I thought it was a very good segment, though. I loved, I love Maren. I love Miranda. I love Mickey. I'm so glad that she, you know, is getting more recognized. She's been around for years now. And I remember seeing her at like a, a country festival in New York, like in 2015 and being blown away by her. So it was fantastic to see her on the Grammy stage. I just hope that she continues to blow up and becomes like the biggest thing in country. But yeah, I mean, I love that entire segment other than John Mayer showing up, but not, no one asked him. I certainly did not ask for it. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that other than that, it was a wonderful segment. Brittany was the girl in the dress who cried all the way home. <laughs> I mean, Deb Hind was already there. They could have just gotten him back on stage. Like, who need the Black Pumas guy? Like, anyone. Anyone else? <laughs> what was Gary I'm, Clark Jr. doing? I'm surprised Mayor could restrain himself from jumping on with the Black Pumas. I think he was, like, almost ready, and they had to restrain him. Uh, they're, they're probably at least, that was probably the case for at least five performances. But... You know, it's all good. Let's uh, let's talk about Taylor Swift. I loved how non-low-key the performance was and how incredibly elaborate. And I also felt like I wrote about in my piece that I felt like there was a next Taylor coming, a potential next Taylor hinted at in this performance, like a, a, an Into the Mystic Taylor that... We're behind the mall, but behind the mall is a portal into a, another mystical Stevie Nixian dimension, perhaps. Um, or Let's I could just be, speak now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I could be totally wrong, just like when we thought the rock album was coming. There's all sorts of red herrings in the uh, Taylor Swift cinematic universe. But what, what, what do we make of, of that performance? I, I love a, a mossy cabin. Um, that was a vibe. It fit, fit very perfectly for, for folklore and doing also an Evermore song even though obviously that album came out after the the period to be eligible. But yeah, I thought it was really great. Again, like, I don't know. I, I also like kind of would have loved to see her in the like in the sort of stripped down roundabout situation. Like I love that part so much that I was like, I would love to see this for, for everything. Um, and I think folklore would have been really kind of, you know, a great, a lot of the tracks on there are really great for that. But I, you know, I love her doing her, her big sort of mystical forest thing, which feels very, Speak Now feels very, you know, fearless, feels very like, you know, the albums that she's re-recording right now and returning to, um, it does feel like very of that enchanted area of her career and life. Does that mean the hair is going to get curly again? Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> but what I would say in retort to the, I, I guess what I liked about it not being one of the in the round performances and being high production is that we've, the way we've seen her for the past year has been super low gloss. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we've seen a, a lot of those 
she did that absolutely wrenching uh, piano performance on one of the early benefits. Very, very low glam and very and very toned down. So I, I, I just appreciated seeing seeing her back, you know, full production mode. It was just nice. Yeah, um, full pop Taylor. Yes. <laughs> Marco Perro, Rob, does anyone want to have further Taylor thoughts? It was the first time that she was at the Grammys in many years. Um, Good point. The Grammys have such a uh, weird history with her. It's, it's always interesting to keep in mind that the biggest selling album of 2018 was an album called Reputation <laughs> by this promising young star named Taylor Swift. And it got zero Grammys. Zero. And it only got one nomination, which is exactly as many as The Grateful Dead got, which meant that for having the best selling album of the year, the Grammys put uh, Taylor on the same approximate level of uh, relevance as uh, Jerry Garcia, who had died 25 years earlier. And the biggest selling album of 2019 was another Taylor Swift album called Lover, which also got zero Grammys. So it's weird that her artistic consistency, although she does something different every time, that this year the Grammy voters and the Grammy show seem to have been in sync with you know, coming back around to Taylor Swift. I thought one of the, the best part of uh, when she won was the fact that the dude who engineered Aaron Desner's music and no doubt is like just a cool indie engineer who does stuff for the national does stuff probably didn't even know that he was engineering for Taylor Swift because you know Aaron just records all this stuff and it wasn't even some of it wasn't even necessarily intended for but there he is up on the stage helping accept the Grammy for album of the year and that was just one of my favorite moments of the night because it's just a reminder of I don't know but all the people we don't know who work behind this stuff and how you can go from, you know, like a, literally a Brooklyn apartment to the stage of the Grammys. And that's, that's kind of uh, something to hope for, I guess, for everyone. Any final thoughts on the Grammys before we wrap up from anyone? They should do it this way every year. They should never go back to having a studio audience and a hammy host. I mean, Trevor Noah was awful, but fortunately he was only on screen for <laughs> a minute or so at a time. And keep with the thing of just focusing on music performers playing music and, you know, keep the soundstage in the round thing. Like as Brittany was saying about Post Malone, it's like that could have really salvaged his performance. He was trying to do a sort of old Grammys performance. They should just keep it this way. They really figured out how to do an award show in the pandemic, which has never been figured out before. Mm -hmm. And I I did want to, we missed something big that's on my list, which is uh, WAP. Now we did an entire episode on the uh, right wing obsession with this song. And uh, then the performance, which was just delightfully campy and and totally lighthearted and practically didn't have a word in it because it was so censored uh, and yet got it got it across like sparked a whole other right-wing inflammation like they went nuts over it but it's weird because it seems so fun and harmless you know and just so over the top I mean obviously the lyrics are so cartoonish and over the top and to have the giant lucite heel which, as I said, I think Ben Shapiro was actually trapped in there if you look closely. But it was just it was just super fun. So it's so interesting how the right wing seized upon it again. Yeah, and also like Cardi, I thought Cardi's performance of Up to, I mean, just that entire segment with like Megan kind of doing this like roaring 20s thing. And I mean, her dancing skills are just 
so above and beyond. I mean, she's just an incredible performer to see live. Like one of the first people I want to see live when I can go back to concerts. And I thought Cardi's performance of Up was so sensational. Like that entire segment was just so great. And like one of the ones where I was like, okay, like no roundabout, great. Like I want to see like this big production for them. Like they just were so fantastic. And it's so funny that like, I mean, I'm not turning on Fox News, but I know like I've seen like all the tweets of people kind of being like every time it's on, like it's just like WAP. It's just like the video of the performance of them together constantly on there and them complaining about it, which is so, so funny to me, which is just like them showing that repeatedly. But I thought it was great. I thought, you know, Megan is just such a star. Cardi continues to be like a performer that I look forward to seeing at award shows. And Megan is becoming increasingly more like that. And to see them together, I... If they released a full album of just like nasty songs, oh I would, I would die, I would perish right now. I mean, it, Megan was incredible, and to see her—I said this in my piece—but to see her reclaim, in my mind, her songs from TikTok was just amazing. I've seen so many TikToks of people doing stuff, doing their Gen Z stuff to bits of those songs, and you know, it, it's sort of like with a lesser performer and lesser songs those could kind of be the definitive form because they work so well in that form but it just watching her do them put back in context like wiped away or put the tiktok stuff in its place it's just a small offshoot of her actual artistry she's incredible yes i think that megan was definitely one of the stars of the night from winning you know the first award for best new artist and being so sincere um, and so humbled by the winds to her incredible performance. Like Brittany said, like she has such like stamina and agility as a dancer and a performer. Watching her win and be recognized and her celebrate herself and her own work was a definite highlight of the night for me. And she had that great line about Beyonce, of course. Yeah, like winning alongside Beyonce, like one of her biggest heroes, the person that like has formed so much of her performance style and that you can so clearly see in Megan in a way that is so beautiful to see and so empowering and so just like leaves me awestruck is to see how much of that like Beyonce kind of performance flair is like in how she approaches all of her award show performances her music videos um to win alongside her I cried like I was just like so emotional about it because especially since that song was released in the middle of the pandemic and like they didn't they haven't been able to do anything together to kind of see them next to each other and get to celebrate that together was so beautiful and so powerful and can I just say I loved as I'm a huge fan of Beyonce as rapper. Like, I think she's an awesome rapper, and I love that she won a rap award because she totally deserves it. Mm-hmm. There was definite um, history, you know, being made. Megan is the first woman who is a female rapper to be named Best New Artist since Lauryn Hill in 1999. And since the Best Rap Song category existed since around 2004, Megan is the first woman who primarily raps to win. And then to win alongside a rapping Beyonce, like you said, is so incredible. And I think it speaks to how women have really dominated and shown and proved and done amazing things in the rap genre. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing more of that in Grammys to come. So that was today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks to Moncaper Conte and Brittany Spanos and Rob Sheffield. And we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106. And in the meantime, we are a podcast. Of course, Rolling Stone Music Now is a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Wherever you get your podcasts, Maybe or definitely leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. They are all appreciated. 
But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord, we get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.